I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Cousin Film Podcast. I'm Jake Cunningham and with me this week is Irena Uzumechi. Hello. And Ryan Hewitt. Hello. And we're here to talk about what's probably going to be the best film of the year, really, isn't it? It's Paddington 2. Yay! It's got a fair claim to that title, I think, yes. Definitely. I mean, we're laughing now, but I think it's absolutely stunning and it will definitely be in my top 10 of the year. Just oh, saying. Without question. Just saying, yeah. Yeah. Totally honest here. A bona fide five star hit. Yeah, absolutely. This was this was three years ago, and this is pre first Paddington. If you said in three years' time, the sequel to the film adaptation about the bear from the kids' books is going to be in the best films of the year lists, would you believe me? I'd have said you were lying, mate. You're having me on. Yeah. I would have said I need to change jobs. (laughs) (laughs) But here we are. Yeah. Here we are, and Paddington 2 exists, and it is a great thing. Um, but it's not the only thing we've watched this week. We've been catching up on a few things. Uh, one series in particular. I've, I've been binge-watching Stranger Things 2. As of I, I've also made it through in less than 48 hours. Did the whole thing. Yeah, I did the yeah. whole thing in the standard nine and a bit hours. We just <laughs> yeah. had a little break for a burger session, homemade, very healthy. Uh, but yeah, it was pretty fantastic to be immersed in uh, the world of the Upside Down and uh, the kids from Hawkins. Uh, really enjoyable. I thought the second series was fantastic and really just pulled all the themes together. They really responded very well to the criticism of the first series. Uh, really enjoyed the female characters in this one. Nancy, I think, is, is going to go far. Um, yeah. Really loved her. And um, yeah, I just thought it was a really enjoyable. It was perfect to binge watch on just before Halloween. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was the absolutely perfect thing to watch over that weekend. Uh, the references were there, they were back in full force. They were more sprawling than they were in the first series, I think. I think um, there was even some, dare I say, a Jurassic Park references in there, which was oh, an definitely. interesting one because. That's set in the 80s? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm almost certain there were Jurassic Park things going on. But this is what's interesting is that the, the Duffer brothers, they were not old enough to have been the age of the kids at the time of Stranger Things. Mm. Like, yeah. like, I was listening to a few things of them, and they were saying that their films are 90s. So their touchstone films yeah. are Jurassic Park. Uh, and it was stuff that they were getting ET on video. They never saw that in the cinema. 
So all the films that are playing during the time of Stranger Things, they all watched on VHS. And so I think that kind of feeling of it being a TV show and being a small screen show actually comes from the fact that, although it's filled with film references, it the com- comes from the fact they watched them on video. Yeah. It's funny how it has such a true... Uh, it's, uh, it's very loyal to its period in terms of costume and the music and things like that. And yet it does play pretty fast and loose with what the Duffer Brothers, for example, would have mm. been grown up watching. It doesn't really matter when the influences were. No. But that's kind it's of... It's almost a, timeless in a way, but it's so yeah. focused on that 80s setting as well. It plays so much on the nostalgia because, yeah. you know, the, the key feature of nostalgia is it's, it's, a, it's a feeling that you have for something that you never really had. It's not a realistic reconstruction of that yeah. moment in time. It's sort of really playing on this idealized moment in time via everything that's happened in between. So actually for me, it's also got a real kind of post 9-11 vibe to it in that uh, there's all this kind of unknown terror and things that can happen to disrupt the home. Uh, so it's it's really kind of seeing the 80s via the lens of everything that's happened yeah. between here and then, which I think why it's why it's so appealing to us, particularly as a generation. It did make me think why do people uh, do people not make a bigger deal out of Super 8, the J.J. Abrams film? Because yeah. it wasn't very good. <laughs> no, because it's excellent. <laughs> and it's just as good as Stranger Things. Well, I don't think it's quite as charming as Stranger Things. Stranger, it's particularly in series two, Stranger Things had uh, this new level of it's building its own dialogue, its own language, and things like Now Memories and Halfway Happy, and we've already talked about the Upside Down, and the demagogue, demodogs, and demodogs. The, yeah, but then there's the demodogs. Oh, is that the thing that's? Oh, you haven't got. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like wow. Oh, Spoiler okay. alert. It's, it's not got demodogs. It's dart, isn't it? The little. Yeah, the yeah. Little bug. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Spoiler section. There's a bug. <laughs> but the way it's sort of building up its own mythology as well, with things like the language and things like the way that these like young kids make sense of big idea, adult ideas with. Just like they're doing super. Yeah, yeah, they kind of do. What can you quote from Super 8 that you can't... Like Stranger Things 2 is... what like In Stranger Things, it's just... Something about that writing that is just so what, true. I think the thing that I latch onto with Super 8 is that they're, is that they're making their film yeah. as well. And that's what I love, is the, the, the kid who's the... I like the kid from the Goonies yeah. so just screaming production value <laughs> yeah. well to me super that's one of the problems that I have with Super 8 because it really came from an adult point of view it really came from a grown up who was wanting to go back to re-experience those feelings and that made it feel really synthetic to me really just not very organic or I don't know I, I felt completely distanced by it that's so interesting considering J.J. Abrams would have lived in that time and actually yep. knows it, and the Duffer Brothers don't. Yeah. There you make go. Something more, arguably more authentic. Yeah, true. We're giving Super 8 a bit of a hard time, I think, yeah, on the maybe. whole. But <laughs> Super 8 felt very, very indebted to Spielberg. Well, it's pretty like ironic. E. Well, yeah, E.T. in particular, mm. but, but also all the others, and, and the Goonies and all that sort of thing. But Stranger Things is so much more sprawling, isn't it? And it's references it's got well and tonally because it's episodic you've got the option that one episode can be more of a horror and one yeah. can be more of yeah. an adventure and i think that's where i've just left it is on the first episode that andrew stanton directed the who's done a number of pixar films and even that i noticed there's a lot more color in this episode mm. and the way that he's actually moving the camera around it almost feels like he's looking at it in an animated way where you're looking for kind of camera economy 
and how much can I do with doing as little as possible as well. And I, that's something that I really like is that freedom that having each episode to give it its own life as well. Yeah. There's also something to be said for the fact that when you have a long form narrative, you just have so much more scope to do emotional depth. And so many of the characters in Super 8 for me really didn't have that. So there's there's a key storyline, which is obviously very powerful, very moving, completely in that to, to Spielberg, as is a lot of Stranger mm. Things. But there's a, there's just the opportunity to hear a lot more from all of the different characters and the fact that, you know, for instance, like Nancy and Jonathan are given a really cool, fun storyline uh, to delve into, meeting this kind of crazy uh, conspiracy, conspiracy theorist journalist. Oh, this is the yeah. love. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you have really minor characters like um, Sean Astin's character, Bob, uh, who is just so brilliantly written, even in those tiny little bits uh, that he has to do, bits and bobs. Um, that's the spin-off show. Yeah. Oh my god, I, I would totally watch that. Like an early kids' morning education show. Oh yes, yeah. please. Um, so I guess that that gives you more time and more space to really explore all the different characters. Okay. What do you think about? There's one moment. I'm pretty sure you're there. Okay. When Lucas tells Mad Max what's been going on, Max tells Max what's yeah. been going on. And she makes a comment about how this has all been happened. This has all happened before. You're just your story was a bit derivative. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. It has a moment of self-awareness. Stranger Things has mm. that moment, which I don't recall happening in series one or elsewhere in series two, where it reflected back on itself and made a joke about how it's pulling on this nostalgia. I think that's you, very you? carefully observed, and it sort of reminded me. It kind of is a. Uh, the death of Stalin to the actual Tory <laughs> conference <laughs> yeah. in that uh, reality is stranger than fiction. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe one of those moments where it kind of uh, reflects upon itself and decides that you cannot make it up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, um, it's a way of deflecting as well. I, like, I think a lot of films do try and have their cake and eat it with this intertextuality stuff and saying oh but we've acknowledged it so that means that we're okay yeah we give ourselves mm. a pass because yeah. we know we're doing it yeah it's once we get into post nostalgia <laughs> I think we're really <laughs> we're really done now yeah. <laughs> okay. um, right we must uh, we must move on because this is not the Stranger Things podcast um, it is indeed the Paddington 2 podcast as we shall probably re- be, be rebranding as we talk about Paddington 2 every week <laughs> for the ongoing future um and I spoke to Hugh Bonneville, who plays Mr. Brown, um, who is Paddington's guardian. Uh, so we're delighted to welcome Hugh Bonneville onto the Curzon Film Podcast. Very nice to be talking to you. So Hugh, we're here to talk about Paddington 2, and um, we'll travel back in time a few years um, to the creation of Paddington 1, when beloved children's characters like Paddington are brought to the screen. Initially, when you hear that news, it always kind of provokes some sort of anxiety, some worry, what are they going to do to it? When the script for that first Paddington dropped on your desk, did you have that same feeling? Absolutely, my heart sank. <laughs> when uh, my agent said, yes, they want to talk to you about playing Mr. Brown in a, in a movie version, I thought, oh no, they're going to completely spoil it because Paddington, as you, as you say, was, was a you know, part of my childhood, certainly, and, and, and uh, his voice and his image was sort of locked in my own imagination and they were going to muck with it, you know, play, um, muck it about at, at their peril. Um, 
but then, so I went to meet Paul King and, and, and David Heyman, uh, David being the producer and Paul the writer and director. And Paul and I were sort of sitting, waiting to go into David's office. And within about sort of two minutes, I realised that he basically was Paddington Bear and uh, utterly sort of beguiling and enchanting. And you would never want him to come in the way of harm uh, at all. And you just want to protect him and <laughs> all that. And um, and this was before I'd even read the script. And and then I read the you know I read the read the script and just started laughing on page one. I, mean, I think the first gag about first thing about the you know the um the carrying a small um, piano or a, or a time oh, the piece explorer yes, bringing the explorer your, bringing the, the time piece yeah, the time piece clock. that's right that's right we're carrying that through the jungle i thought was hilarious and uh, i thought oh we're in pretty safe hands here and uh, uh so so any yeah, any nerves i had sort of evaporated fairly quickly and of course when you've got someone like david uh who has a pedigree for taking much loved uh children's or family books and putting them onto the big screen you sort of know that you've got two at least two elements going well um, and then as the cast came together and and the design then it sort of took on a life of its own that was uh, you know very exciting but I suppose the odd thing must be that Paddington is a CGI character no so he's not he's not he's real <laughs> the bear is real um, yeah and there was a lot of it, it was quite it was quite it was frustrating but funny um, when the, all these sort of memes came out uh, of, uh, in the first film when the, when the image of the bear had been released and people started saying that he looked rather sinister and they did all these posters of him in things like you know Jaws and The Exorcist and everything else that he was going to be this murderous bear and people would of course as it always happens you know prejudging the film saying it's going to be terrible they've ruined it and of course I you know we sort of knew or stuck stuck to the faith that it was going to be more than that it was going to be better than that and even I was completely blown away when I when I the first little bit of footage I saw was um of the uh of, of Paddington sticking his head down the loo and flooding the bathroom and I was completely blown away by the quality of how that came to life uh, and from then on, I, you know, I was completely convinced that the bear was real, and that, mm-hmm. uh, and so when when we came to do the second one, um, there was no doubt in my mind that I wasn't staring into space. I was staring at that bear that had the voice of Ben Whishaw, you know, but it's Paddington's voice. Um, and uh, and then when I watched it again, you know, I, I'd completely forgotten that Paddington wasn't actually on my shoulders in the fairground scene. You know, of course he climbed off my back and onto the ground and. It's weird. It was weird. I know acting's all about projecting in mm. some way or other and projecting imagination, but you sort of take it to, I suppose, a different level when you're working with a bear who doesn't often come out of his trailer. <laughs> and um, how quickly after that first film played were you told you were getting the gang back together? Uh, I can't remember. It was a while. I think there would have been... In fact, it was Maddie Harris who plays uh, Judy, uh, my daughter in the film. She... she uh, she said at the uh, the rap party, "I'll see you, see you on the next one." So she was quite confident there was going to be a sequel, but uh, at that stage we weren't quite sure whether it was going to, you know, how well it was going to play. But it did play so well all around the world, um, and so it seemed to be a bit of a no-brainer. I, I, I think I felt for Paul because Paul King, because you know he, he's lived, he's now lived with this bear pretty much for seven or eight years, uh, and he needs a break. And I wasn't sure whether he was going to have the energy to do the second one. So it took him a while with Simon Farnaby to write the the second one. And obviously, while you want to keep flavours of the first, and you want the audience's got expectations about the characters and how they're going to behave, and 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 and. Uh, you know, you want them to be familiar, but you want them to be in a new situation and you want new characters. And I think they that was a real challenge. They couldn't just set the dial back to, for example, you couldn't have Mr. Brown just going back to being um, a neurotic, overprotective parent because the whole point of the first film was him breaking away from that um, through the addition of Paddington to his life. 
But I think, uh, so in the second film, giving Mr. Brown a midlife crisis was a stroke of genius because then there's a lot more fun to play with. Um, so uh, I, think, I think the development of it, while you know, it, it did take a while for them to tinker with the script and get the story structure right and so on, but it was worth the wait. Yeah, well, it's, it's so often when there's a film that is a surprise runaway success, people want to get involved straight away and you want a sequel within 12 months' time. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, I think you can see with you've got a three-year gap you've actually had time to actually really care about the script and really put the time and effort in and how do you think maybe Simon Barnaby's involvement shifted the story uh well that's a question I think for them but uh but Simon who plays he's he he co-wrote the second script but he also plays the rather peculiar security guard in both films um, uh, he he of course has a you know a great track record in from from TV in particular and the horrible histories and that uh, bonkers film Mindhorn, um, uh, and he has got a wonderfully surreal sense of humour as has Paul. So they I think really feed off each other and they've their their way of working. You know when we went in to discuss how Mr Brown might behave in the second film, you know their ideas for him and 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 the way they bounce off each other is really great fun. Um, they're very good at, uh, at taking things to a ludicrous extreme and then reining things back to, to being on the edge of credibility. Um, so that process, I think, was very important to them. And they work with other writers as well. You know, they'd bounce, you know, because they come from the, the rich seam of um, comedic writers um, that they, you know, would bounce ideas around each other. Um, and then you've got a lovely selection of cast who came to play and there was you know, some fantastic um, British actors who just come and, and play for the day, so to speak, um, from Richard Ayoade and uh, uh, Mira Sayal and Ben Miller and all these wonderful uh, uh, household f- figures from our TV screens. Um, so having bringing them into the mix and, and their ideas as well um, of how to you know bolster the characters and bolster the narrative. Um, it was uh, it was a very that's the great thing about Paul and Simon. They're very collaborative, and mm. and it's the great the mark of a great producer is to is to not breathe down everyone's neck and to let people have their head, let let people run with what they're good at. And that's what David is very, I think, astute at doing, is getting people who, who really know what they're doing and, and trusting them, as long as they're not sort of taking private jets everywhere and blowing the budget. But, uh, you know, a- allowing allowing people to have that creative freedom. And a number of times Paul would say, this scene isn't working and it's my fault, I haven't written it right, Let's let's we'll come back to it another day. And... Uh, rather than going, don't be ridiculous. That's you know several hundred thousand million trillion pounds that's going down the drain. You know, David would say, okay, let's have a see if we can work around that. But we will have to lose that element, and or, you know, we can't therefore do that. And Paul, they discuss it, and they, you know, there was never any sort of tension over that. It was just a way of how do we make this the best it can possibly be. And that's that's you know, it's great to be around that atmosphere. Yeah, well, it seems like there's there's so much love and care that's been put into the film. I was watching the first one again, and. Um, noticed the first thing that we hear Mrs. Brown say is that she had just been swimming in the Wool Museum pool mm. and it's kind of just a, a bit of a throwaway thing and then that in this second film that's turned into a plot point really yeah, her yeah. swimming and then the fact that Judy's bon- first time that she bonds with Paddington is over a newspaper and again now mm. we're learning a bit more about them. Yeah well that's right and uh, so what yes what could have just been character traits or character quips actually become really central to the or, or important points in the story so so uh, you see Jonathan in the first film who's got this love of sort of Meccano and mechanical engineering and you know by the second film he's 
he's uh, you know he's into steam trains he knows how steam trains work but it's not cool at school to, to reveal that so he adopts this persona of J-Dog um, and of course by the end it's sort of when it's important when it matters most he can reveal his real skills um, so I love that that each of these little and, and again Judy's journalism and Mr Brown's midlife crisis and the way he's coping with it actually comes a bit of you know important part of his own plot that uh, it saves him when it uh, his, his newfound uh, love of chacrobatics as yeah. we call it uh, you know it saves, saves him when the, when the chips are down yeah he's, he's gone on a bit of a journey of self-exploration <laughs> in the last couple of years since <laughs> yes, the first film he has well as I say because they couldn't just reset the dial to being just a neurotic so to have him going through this uh, Midlife crisis, which of course I haven't had myself yet. You know, I'm um, being in my early thirties, um, but uh, so I aged up for the film, and uh, you know, to see Mr. Brown thinking, "Oh my goodness, I'm you know over the hill. It's all good. You know, life has passed me by, and I'm beginning to creak." And um, uh, and so he tries to, you know, he gets fit and tries to embrace uh, embrace his uh, his chacrobatics, and and uh, it's, it's fun. It was a lot of fun to you know, play with that. Yeah, um, and so something that. I've, when I was looking up the history of Paddington, uh, an interesting thing that I thought of was that, or found was that when the Channel Tunnel was first connected between Britain and Europe, the first thing that was passed over from Britain to France was a Paddington bear. No. Oh, that's enchanting. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a um, lovely story. Gosh. So, um, what do you, how would you interpret the meaning of that gift? <laughs> I Gosh, that's interesting. I suppose... If you really want to drill down into it, I would say that Paddington, who is seen to be so iconically British, is, of course, from somewhere else. And I think the handing on or the handing over of a, uh, a, 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 someone who's been a stranger in a strange place uh, to a new, touching, reaching out to a new continent, well, I think that, uh, that's a nice little symbol in there somewhere. Excellent. Well, Hugh Bonneville, Mr. Brown, thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Hugh Bonneville, who I spoke to on the 36th floor of the Shard building. Wow. Yes. Which makes an appearance uh, yes, in Paddington How meta. <laughs> <laughs> they really thought about it. I was handed a number two shaped marmalade sandwich. Oh, oh that's nice. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that chat. Now let's talk about Paddington 2. Um, now, so this film... It was announced in April 2015, which actually gave us kind of a six-month purgatory from the release of the original, because I thought it would be like, you made that first one, you're going straight in. And yeah. normally, as I said in the interview, when you have a runaway success like that, you're turning around and trying to crank out a bad mums too and get it out <laughs> within 12 months. Um, but this is not, this is had three years of love and care put into it. Are you saying this is not bad bears too? Bad bears too. What are you going to do? <laughs> He's actually a pretty good bear. Yeah. Yeah. He's the, the most honest, sincere little bear of all time. I yeah, think. Best bear. Yeah. He's better than Pooh Bear, Winnie the Pooh. Definitely. What yeah. other bears? Baloo is pretty good. Well, I mean, as we know the, from the poster of Yogi Bear, as the tagline says, great things come in bears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And there's nothing that you could read into that would make that sound weird. <laughs> um, but there have been some bad bears, though. There are bad bears. There are, right? Yeah. Sounds like you've got some experience. No, no, Grizzly Man. Grizzly okay. Man, of course. <laughs> yeah. That's a that was a real bad bear. Uh, there are the bad news bears. Oh, and brilliant. Bad news. Yeah. I love that film. I used to watch that repeatedly. I even, like, 
pretend that I faked illness from school <laughs> to watch the final episode of the TV adaptation of the Bad News Bears. <laughs> and like I was sick and I had to stay at home and watch it. What a shame. Did it you was see fantastic. The I did not see the remake, but I can tell you something about the original, which is that Jackie Earl Haley is in it. Is he? He plays the bully boy who turns out to be a pretty awesome pitcher. Oh, Rorschach himself. There you go, that's did Rorschach's childhood. Did was a prequel to Watchmen. <laughs> origin story. What a story. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's that series before Watchmen. It was inspired by Bernie yeah. This podcast scoop. is taking place in a very strange multiverse where... <laughs> Paddington, The Bad News, Bears, Watchmen, and Stranger Things coexist. Yeah. And I totally watch this. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> that is a crossover show. Yeah. yeah. We just, we're going to have like Samuel L. Jackson appear at the end of Paddington 2. So <laughs> it's time to talk about the Ozymandias project. <laughs> uh, um, I'm sick of these <laughs> effing bears and these plane. <laughs> this should be cut, by the way. Yes, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, but Paddington, uh, Paddington <laughs> 1, we all loved. It came as a, what was nice about Paddington 1 is that no one uh, expected it to be great because it's a beloved childhood character who gets brought to screen and nine times out of ten it's going to be horrible. But this time we've got the ingredient of David Heyman who brought all the Harry Potters to the screen. And so we have some element of trust there. And for me, this was a real great surprise. I actually didn't watch it when it was in cinemas. It was like, I watched it in June and completely fell for it then. And I've just been so excited since. I watched the original in the cinema at the time of release around Christmas and it was absolutely magical. We were surrounded by kids who were totally mesmerized and completely involved in the emotional stakes of the story, which is fantastic because it's not just action. Uh, and there's a, there's a real depth to it. And I think what really struck me is we were sat next to this uh, family of Spanish-British kids and uh, they were kind of speaking in two languages to their mum and dad and they were really just totally latching on to the multiculturalism of the story and the atmosphere. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And how much it reflects, I think, quite a lot of uh, real London in a way, even though it's so magical and kind of fantastical pop-up book London. Yeah. But there's, a, there's an element to it that is very recognisable and very true, which yeah. is, you know, just the coexistence of so many different people. Well, as, um, as D-Line, the band that appear in the film and, and in the sequel, they say the, the first song they sing in the first 
uh, first film, London is the place for me. There you and go. I think that, that's the case for everyone in the film, and it, it's kind of about finding a home and yeah. finding their place within a home with, or a family unit as well. And where we join Paddington too, he's very much a, a staple of the, the Brown household and, and of Windsor Gardens, the street upon which they live. And I think Paddington's kind of inherent goodness seems to be spreading out of London as well. Not out, but further outside of Windsor Gardens to the rest of London. And we see him kind of catching the bus and helping the dustbin man and helping a lady with her yeah. lunch. And, just, and he's just kind of spreading this joy. He, yeah, that opening, it's not the opening, is it? But that scene where he rides around the Winter Gardens is just utterly charming and it sets up the stable of where we're going to be here, what Paddington means to everybody. And you can see how he is just infecting everybody's lives with what you say, just pure like, happiness. They're not, they're not really changed, but he just makes life easier and better yeah, for them. And, and there is a moment, we won't spoil it, but there's a moment where we see a mirroring of the same scene yeah. without Paddington mm. and you can see exactly what he's brought to them and they don't realise it and that's, that's how good he is because he's not doing it to be told Paddington you're an amazing bear, yeah. he's doing it just because it's the right thing to do um, and we, we get introduced to a lot of new characters so we've got um, regulars of British TV in Jessica Hines and Ben Miller and Sandy yeah. Pascal all getting added to the uh, this London street and it's really lovely and they all get their own little story <laughs> it's so much fun that opening when it's the who's who of British TV and film talent and it's almost it could be cameo overload yeah. but it's not it's just this like, a charming Olympics. moment building upon yeah. moment upon moment upon moment and it runs for a minute or maybe a minute and a half of just people saying hello and you know who every single face is yeah yeah, and it's somehow totally not cheesy either, yeah, which yeah. is is really a testament to the quality of the filmmaking in this in this one. And um, after we have all this screen royalty, there is one that tops it all, which uh, kind of begins our plot, which is the introduction of Phoenix Buchanan. Oh, what a glorious, glorious, glorious performance from Hugh Grant. I just did not. I did not think that he had it in him. Um, you know, some of my favorite actors uh, are pretty renowned, kind of dramatic, uh, tragic actors like Ray Fiennes. But I always knew that Ray Fiennes had comedy in him before the Grand Budapest yeah. Hotel. And Hugh Grant, I really just did not see the level of kind of self, uh, well, self-awareness in a way, because he's really sending up a certain kind of actor, which I'm, I'm pretty sure he has been for a little mm -hmm. while. Um, but also like all of this kind of these transformations into the various different acts and characters that he's playing he's trying to do his Laurence Olivier here guys and this is a performance worthy of many many Olivier Awards and many BAFTAs <laughs> all of them given to him yeah. that's it category just done go back and strip like BAFTAs off of people just to yes. keep yeah, yeah. retrospectively so I must say how are we here how Hugh Grant <laughs> actually ties into the plot here um, and then, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anyone's going into Paddington to, to get the like intense plot off <laughs> there is a treasure hunt to um, find a book because Paddington has been told that the book is very valuable and it's a pop-up book of London and because his aunt now the home for retired bears, obviously. In um, Peru. In Peru. Darkest Peru. Darkest Peru. <laughs> um, she, she's never seen London, so she's, he wants to save money by being a window cleaner, amazing sequence as well, um, yes. to buy this book and send it back to her so that she can see London. But this is also the pop-up book owned by 
Hugh Grant's character's granddad who ran a fair ground and somewhere in the fairground is loads of money and he needs money because he's doing dog food adverts well he murdered someone and stole her treasure yes the granddad did didn't he and in the pop-up book the clues uh, he attempted to steal the treasure the treasure was then safely guarded Mm -hmm. by the person who owned it and in the pop-up book the clues as to where the treasure may be kept. And they are all across London in They're these lovely London uh, yeah. And it just means that this whole film is like the ultimate red bus tour around the city. Yeah. Um, and when we actually we delve into the book, we don't just, like this book is, like we actually get to live in it for a bit. And that may be the best sequence in the film. Like this lovely stop motion pop-up bit. When we go into the pop-up book, yeah. yeah and we, we actually, we, so Paddington opens the book and he imagines him and his Aunt Lucy walking through these London landmarks. And it's amazing. It's so lovely to look at. And you said to me before we started recording, this maybe has hints of Simon Farnaby, who was of the mighty Boosh, who was in the first film as an actor and has now joined this film as a writer. And has a cameo in the film as well. And in the first one as well. It's the the security guard. There's a strange security man. In both. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what do you think that... Finally, brings because I kind of touched on it with Hugh Bonneville in the interview, but it, um, I think he said that's more of a question for them. But do you think you see some of that weirdness of the Mighty Boosh coming in? I think absolutely, yeah. I think Mighty Boosh has a certain um, it's not fair to say like juvenile, but it is a bit juvenile sometimes in its humor, but it has a irreverence to it. But the gags it's not are tacky, it's kind of wacky, yeah, it's wacky and it's silly and it's mm. goofy. And I think Paddington has a lot of goofy gags in it, but it, it, it nails them, it sells every single one with its just its warmth and its sense of adventure and magic, which Boosh kind of got away with as well because they just bought into the weird and wonderful world they were creating. But I think for me, Boosh didn't always land. I think, I think like, towards, it was, it was yeah, maybe towards the end. In yeah. its first couple of series, I think it was up there with you know, yeah. some of the best British comedy there's been but take your point there. yeah I think I think because Paddington has is established before them that they they know exactly the tone they need to hear and yeah they, like they've tried so hard to make it look this easy yeah 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 um, and Irene you're saying that there's another director or touchstone that you think is coming through a bit stronger in this film as well compared to the first one well for me there's there's a major uh, Wes Anderson influence on the film particularly in the sequences that take place in the prison uh, which kind of refer back to the Grand Budapest Hotel quite you know sincerely and as a clear loving homage uh, at the point where um, first of all the first thing that happens is Paddington is meant to do the laundry Paddington is sent to prison first of all for a crime he did not commit and uh, <laughs> this should be clarified uh, and he, the crime that he's accused of is stealing the pop-up book that we were talking about earlier so once he gets into prison he's given his uniform and he's uh, um, uh, on laundry duty and the first thing that happens is you know he tries to do the laundry and then Completely by accident, a red sock gets into the washing machine. Red socks have a tendency to do this, I find, in life. Uh, so yet another great realistic moment <laughs> in Paddington. And unfortunately, uh, all of the um, all of the uniforms for the very butch macho uh, dwellers of the prison, uh, all of their uniforms are turned pink, which f- starts off this kind of brilliant series of nods to the Grand Budapest Hotel, which mm. is a film absolutely drenched in this 
pink before millennial pink was a thing. Uh, and then subsequently Paddington teaches uh, Brendan Gleeson's character, who is the, the chef called Knuckles. Knuckles uh, McGinty. Yeah. Uh, who is uh, so hard and so tough and no one dare complain about the horrible porridge that he makes. <laughs> and Paddington, Paddington teaches him how to make marmalade. And this wins everybody over. And Knuckles discovers that he's got a real knack for pastry. And it gets everyone involved and everyone starts to make these absolutely like acrobatic <laughs> <laughs> baking the exercises that just the send the best room. British bake-off into misery. <laughs> I would say, you know, they just probably all win ex equal best, uh, best, what do they win? Best baker on the British bake-off? <laughs> Star, Star baker. Star baker. There mm. you go. Uh, and uh, so th there's a lot of references there to uh, Mendel's pastries and, and chocolates in the Grand Budapest Hotel, but also a sensational prison escape uh, sequence, which nods again back to the Grand Budapest Hotel. But on top of that, there's more of a sort of Wes Andersonian touch, I think, in the way the film deals with uh, childhood and the experience of childhood in that I find that there's a there's a again you know nostalgia in in a certain sense and at the same time it's a nostalgia for a time that never existed this place is pretty much made up but it's a place where goodness is allowed to live and really shine through which is the the joy of it so there were little uh, sort of nods here and there I think to the Wes Anderson world and I, I'm sure that Paddington 3 will have a lot more corduroy as the kids grow up to be hipsters really cause... yeah and maybe some Willem Dafoe having his fingers chopped yeah. oh yeah yeah that's what this film's <laughs> missing like Willem Dafoe is is superb at the really gentle comedy in Florida Project by the way so he'd be yeah. perfect oh, yeah. that's he, he's ready as well so yeah do make sure you check that out too um whilst you're listening when that prison escape happens that we end up with this um lovely constructed balloon and we kind of um yeah. move over London and it kind of got me think. I think Paddington is pretty much. I think maybe I might come at it from a perspective of Paddington's an, an immigrant who's been welcomed into a country and he's improved it um, mm. by that fact. But a lot of people maybe watch the film and think this is a very story about the kind of best of Britain and, and this is a Britain where people still use red telephone boxes and lovely skyline shots over England. And I think that shows just how much of a diverse audience that this film is actually going to reach and is enjoyable for I think this is like an ultimate family film and kind of releasing it now as well at exactly the time when you're going to be bringing grandparents to the cinema uh, there is no way that I can see anyone not enjoying it yeah I think you make a good point about the inclusivity of it and Peter Capaldi's character is very much the full guy for any you know unpleasant what idea <laughs> about people <laughs> coming variety. Yeah. Um, the critic just called his character Brexit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he's like an embodiment of that ideology, isn't he? And the film does a really nice job, I think, of skirting alongside those kind of issues, shall we call them, without going too heavy-handed on them, because it's been, essentially this is a kid's film, but it isn't pretending that that isn't you know, the world we live in. But it's very British, but it's also... It's not sickening it's no, at all. No. Um, and I think it's like it's got that old BBC mantra of inform, educate, entertain mm. as well. Yeah. And there's there's for me if I was uh, kind of I don't know between the, the ages that the kids are. What do you like between eight and thirteen, fourteen? Mm -hmm. uh, they are they kind of inspire you to learn, 
as well. Like you, you watch and you think, God, print media, that's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like yeah. Judy, Judy um, who uh, is in the first film is kind of like on the verge of becoming a grumpy teenager. In this one, she's established a student newspaper and she's bought a printing press and she's making that herself. And um, Jonathan has developed from making Meccano to actually getting well into steam trains. And, uh, that's that's exactly what I meant about the Wes Anderson uh, touch, you know, with representing the children and the kind of young teens. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of Moonrise Kingdom element there, um, with the kids kind of being obsessed by very specific retro vintagey type things. So the the printing press and the the steam engines, and it, it's it's lovely actually. The the Jonathan's um, arc through the film is really quite fun. In that mm-hmm. at the beginning, he's kind of this. Uh, quite a nerdy teenager who's into steam engines but he's pretending that he's really J-Dog a rapper <laughs> and a really cool guy who walks around with like neon plastic uh, sunglasses well, he looks cool and he looks yeah. so cool and there's another kid who kind of gives him a sort of dab and goes yeah man <laughs> was it a dab? I, I don't know was it was, I think yeah. it was a dab oh, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know by the end there's this lovely narrative with Jonathan where actually he manages to trigger a, one of the best sequences in the film, mm. which is the fantastic uh, train chase uh, mm. in search of lost treasure, also inspired by... Indiana Jones? Yes. Yeah. Well, you've got Hugh Bonneville doing his super yoga. And oh, that's <laughs> brilliant too. Um, but then, you know, there's this really great kind of moment of acceptance where Jonathan says, my name is not J-Dog, my name is Jonathan and I love steam engines. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I think actually that's, that's very much in that spirit of uh, inform, entertain and educate in the sense that it's really inspiring kids to be who they are and yeah. really to just kind of say, if you're interested in stuff that's uncool, don't worry, just be yourself and someday you might just find treasure. Yeah, um, uh, and you, you do come out of it think you're, you whatever it is you're doing, you feel more passionate about it. And it's it's the Paddington effect that he has on his street and on his city. We end up getting as soon as you walk out the door. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone was so moved in the screening I was at. And there's going to have to be a bit of disclosure here in that Ryan actually cried. He was in tears. Excellent. I cried cried at the opening. That's brilliant. On the the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. When Paddington's (laughs) origins. Oh, that that was so moving. That's like 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 mild peril. What? Come on. That was really moving. That was really terrifying. Yeah, I think was. at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, fair yeah, I was, I was gone. I was Uncle well into it. I'm, I'm really bad at crying. So parents, I mean, I, yeah, parents, I don't take cry your, easy, but take I your do. adult oh. sons, yeah. take your adult sons to see Paddington, and they will be reduced to a puddle of tears. They, they will have yeah, full, you fully think formed it's tears, done, and then there's an epilogue. Yeah. yeah. So, soften any kind of yeah. heart and soul like yourself, Ryan. Paddington isn't touched by that kind of cynicism that I'm touched with. He's just <laughs> He's inspiring you, isn't he? True North. He's got into you a bit, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. <laughs> he's so good. And like, yeah, good, he's goodness. Yeah, he is. Embodied. And it's just Furry. impossible not to feel for that little guy. He's not from the current the trend that feels like kids in films are very precocious and they're very wiser than the years, always cracking gags and things like that and they fit in with adults and... which is very fun to watch but there's something about a bear who is essentially a child of maybe eight 
or nine years old. I don't know how exactly old he yeah. is, but I mean, I just, he's he's like an eight-year-old little kid who very skilled doesn't. Yeah, yeah, he is. Apart from a uh, toothbrush. Yeah, not so skilled with a pair of barbershop clippers though. Ooh. <laughs> My well, absolute that, favourite yeah, scene. Tom Conti uh, <laughs> yeah. has a number of cameos in which he suffers completely <laughs> at the hands of Paddington yeah. a number of times, um, which is a great recurring joke. And that's one of many jokes um, that kind of gets set up in the first few minutes of the film, uh, and they pay off at the end. Like there's like no bit of information is wasted. That's the amazing mm. thing about it. It's, it's very economical with the storytelling also because it's got a really nice, you know, curt running time so it doesn't quite, it doesn't have any extra padding so it's it's very extra. good. Extra Paddington. <laughs> I would have loved some extra Paddington. <laughs> yeah. But um, one thing I wanted to add to that in that, you know, the, the representation of Paddington is absolutely excellent, not just by narrative and dialogue, but also the animation is extraordinary. Yeah. His eyes are so expressive that I think a lot of the job of, you know, getting the viewer to really emote with what Paddington is going through has to do with the excellence well, of that. I mean, and there's when he gave, gives scary Brendan Gleeson. Oh, oh yeah. Wow, what a moment that. That's, that's just fantastic. Yeah, there's, um, I, recently, I watched uh, Paddington 1 again this week and um, there's a great bit in that where he, he holds on to the cistern of a toilet and just as it falls down kind of looks to one side and you just see the whites in his eyes and you instantly see that kind of worry and It's absolutely brilliant. His eyes are just... But he's in yeah. a short span of three years since the last one that he looks better. Like the fur is actually a bit more realistic. Yeah. It feels a bit more textured. Does, it, does he age? I'd like to think he's immortal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Of course. Are you suggesting that Paddington will die at some point? No. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, you you mentioned immortality here. Of course, yeah. he's immortal. Uh, but just, I, I wonder if he's actually grown up a bit with the kids, because that's that's yeah, what's going to happen. I think. Well, in this one, he gets a job, which I think is. Yeah. Yeah, he's I certainly maturing, isn't he? Yeah, and actually, something that I do want to point out is he works at Gruber's, the antique shop. Mm-hmm. They really need to sort out their security. Because in the first film, a guy also steals water from Gruber's and Paddington goes on another chase. Uh, and the, the guy that steals it is Superhands from Beep Show. Which is it. Um, oh, and so, yeah, Gruber's needs to just employ a guy on the door. Because yeah. now people stealing from that antique shop has kind of been a plot point that has begun two films now. <laughs> Gruber is also a brilliant character and uh, the character of Gruber kind of really taps into this notion of accepting uh, the, the person who comes in from outside possibly from a very dangerous situation because Gruber is actually based on um, uh, Gruber himself is a, it's suggested quite heavily in the first film that he is a child who came to Britain as part of the kinder transport which were the trains that were run to save um, to, to rescue Jewish children from persecution in Nazi Germany. So that's kind of, actually, I think that's very much a backstory of the, the author uh, who wrote Paddington. He certainly deliberately wanted to tap into this, this thing. I don't know how much yeah, it relates no, to his biography. Because I think they, it, the explorer that meets Paddington in the first one as well, they talk about how during the war there were children who yeah. were taken out of unsafe places and sent exactly. along families would take them in. And I think that's very into that there yeah um, so the idea of Paddington as a refugee is very much resonant to the to the the origin of the story but also the ethos of the the educational piece that goes into the 
into Paddington. Mm. And um, yeah, he arrives in town with the, the tag around his neck that just says, please look after this bear. Yes. Lovely. And at uh, the screening I was at, each seat had a tag around it that just said, please look after each other. Oh, oh that's so And uh, so I've taken that and uh, I've currently just got that tied around my desk. That's so sweet. Speaking of things that are sweet, Irena, <laughs> it sounds like you've got a fascinating marmalade story to share. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if this is a fascinating story. It's 99% apocryphal, I'm sure. But I was told that the, the origins of the word marmalade came from the time when Mary Queen of Scots, who was French, uh, had arrived in Scotland and was ill in bed and needed a concoction that was usually made for her in, uh, uh, in France back when, you know, in the continent. And it was a concoction made from, from cooked um, citrus fruits and oranges, which at the time were an absolute luxury. And uh, it was, you know, essentially a, a, um, a jam made from marmalade. And it was brought to Marie, who was malade. Hence the origin of the word marmalade. So sorry to refer back to our call me by your name favorite line. I just wanted to talk etymology for a second. Um, I think this is probably just a lie, but it, it is quite a nice story. And uh, it's lovely that marmalade, uh, which was probably not invented in Britain, has become almost synonymous with Britishness, which kind of ties into, again, this, uh, this notion of Paddington as a quintessentially British story. But marmalade as a concept is a pretty pan-European uh, thing. And well, what, what, what's your favourite thing to have marmalade with, right? Uh, I, I don't actually like marmalade at all. Shocking. What are you doing on this podcast, Brennan? <laughs> Toast. Toast. With butter and marmalade. So you were talking about pan-European condiments. I'm the only one eating it with croissants. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. It's the yeah. best. There's a place in uh, in my hometown in Italy where they do a blood orange croissant. Oh, oh right. it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, that does sound good. You often get marmalade in those little uh, preserve pots, don't you? You do, Ryan. Yeah. yeah. You do. It's often in there. It's, it's a staple of preserve of choice. That's like your travel lodge breakfast. Yeah, it? yeah. That's what you're going to get. You have a... Well, another apocryphal story about marmalade that I was told recently is that marmalade was invented in Oxford. And I think this is to do with Frank Cooper's marmalade being one of the most uh, the, the most renowned brands. But I don't actually think that's true. However, what is true is that we're going to be bringing Paddington 2 to Oxford very soon. Um, we've got a brand new cinema opening on the 17th of November, which is in two weeks time. And uh, we really can't wait, actually. We've got a lovely campaign that has Paddington all over it. So uh, Oxford is, is full of it. I'm sure they will <laughs> by the time we're there. But actually, our little Paddington that we keep here in the office, uh, which is a lovely gift from the distributors of Paddington Studio Canal, uh, is currently in Oxford, welcoming people over to <laughs> the entrance of the new cinema as we do some building works. <laughs> that just gives me a flashback to somewhere that I, was, I think it might be my dentist as a kid had a giant Paddington and you put a coin in his hand. Oh yeah, as a charity. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember those, yeah. Yeah, they were everywhere. That's they? lovely. Yeah, yeah that was a, was a charity. Paddington, he's just always doing good. Yeah, he's <laughs> the best. He's object. <laughs> he's absolutely the best. Yeah. Um, right, so just go and watch Paddington. I mean, this, this chat's gone on long enough. Just watch it. Um, if you somehow need to watch something else that isn't Paddington, uh, Marjorie Prime is on Curzon Home Cinema. Uh, I haven't had the chance to watch it yet, 
but the thing that's got me really excited is the music is by Michael Levy, who did uh, the score for Jackie and for Under the Skin, two of the most amazing pieces of film music in the last couple of years. Uh, and that's going to be available to watch on demand on Curzon Home Cinema. Uh, so do go and watch that as well. Um, but I think that's probably about it. Um, until Paddington 3, I suppose. Oh, I can't, can't wait. Can't wait, yeah. Can't wait. Um, all right, well, uh, it's goodbye from Irena. Bye. It's goodbye from Ryan. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.